This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, are honored to bring Nathaniel Jarrett to this episode on the topic of Britain's war against France during the French Revolution period. His book is titled The Lion at Dawn, Forging British Strategy in the Age of the French Revolution, 1783 to 1797. And that's from the University of Oklahoma Press. His research shows readers the way France engulfed Great Britain and the Netherlands into war for almost a quarter of a century. And by 1815, Jarrett argues Britain and its prime minister, William Pitt, had realized their goal of an international collective European system. Dr. Jarrett, would you please introduce yourself to the NBN audience? Uh, Yes, thank you for that uh, kind introduction. Uh, I am... uh... I'm Dr. Nate Jarrett. I'm uh, I have a BA from High Point University. Uh, studied there with Dr. Frederick Schneid, uh, and then I got did my doctorate work at University of North Texas. Uh, studied with Dr. Michael Legere and several under one, other wonderful scholars there. Uh, now I'm teaching at Wesleyan Christian Academy in North Carolina. What brought you into the history field? So I grew. I developed a love of history growing up. My uh, my family and my father in particular uh, taught me to love history. And then when I got to college and took a couple classes just for fun, um, Rick Schneid kind of developed that into a real passion. Why is the University of North Texas important for you? What else aside from the faculty members that you worked with? Um, so UNT is uh, kind of a unique, unique place uh, in that it has the Military History Center there, which is a... Um, I guess a uh, component of the history department that is devoted to supporting scholarship on military or diplomatic topics. Um, and I got to, uh, they focus on ensuring that there are faculty there that are eminent military historians to, to learn from, such as uh, Rob Satino at one time, Jeff Warrow, Rick McCaslin, my own advisor, Mike Legere. Um, and every year they bring in scholars from around the world to speak to the students and 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 also meet more informally uh, to you know, support and be on committees and things like that. Um, and the Military History Center also provides uh, crucial financial support for uh, research, um, going abroad, wherever it is you need to go to do do research. Uh, they they've been they were very helpful uh, financially. Um, 
And I mean, as I mentioned before, you know, that even beyond just the, the, the military history center, the faculty at UNT was, was extremely helpful. Um, if I, I do want to give a special, uh, mention to, uh, Dr. Marilyn Morris, uh, one of my committee members, um, she actually just passed away last week, uh, which I was sad to hear. Um, she was a, a great teacher. Um, even though she was not my major professor, she was very free with her time and, and worked tirelessly to help me succeed. So um, great, great place. And you mentioned diplomatic history. Is this book um, a diplomatic history? Um, and if so, who are the main figures or entities pushing an agenda? Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think this is definitely part of diplomatic history. Um uh, almost more than it is military, but it's, it's both. Um, I think the, uh, the primary, um, I think the primary entities pushing, uh, pushing an agenda, as you said, I mean, the diplomacy is guided by the King, the cabinet, uh, parliament, and, and really it's kind of the, the cabinet, uh, uh, the British cabinet is what's directing things, um, which is um, it's chosen by the king, but it has to be you know, approved, uh, not approved by parliament per se, but it has to be um, uh, selected from people that parliament find acceptable and can work with. Right. It has to has to be a, a, a group that can uh, get policies through parliament but also policies that are acceptable to the king. So uh, those kind of three political components. Uh, but as far as, um, you know, other factors that weigh into to kind of guiding the diplomacy, um, you know, the naval and financial factors were, were always huge, um, especially for uh, Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger after his first years in office. Um and that's primarily because he's coming off of you know years of defeat uh, in the American War of Independence. Uh, so initial goals are uh, restore strength uh, so that Britain can re-engage with, in, in the international arena uh, as, a, as a strong power, not a weak one. You also mentioned the Blue Water School. Explain that for all of us who may wonder what that means. Yeah, so I talked about uh, two different schools of thought in British foreign policy, and there's um, there's kind of the blue water versus the continental school. Um, and there's, I mean, the, blue, the idea of the blue water school, the terminology is perhaps a bit anachronistic, drawing from, uh, you know, Mahan in the 19th century, uh, but it has been widely applied to uh, British foreign policy in the in the 18th century throughout uh, the historiography. Um, it it's essentially blue water school is essentially an oversimplification of the idea that Britain should uh, strategically and, and throughout its, its foreign policy objectives focus primarily on maximizing colonial holdings uh, for economic and naval utility and focus on maximizing its naval assets to defend those colonies and defend the home islands. And, you know, from that perspective, European affairs you know, are, are less relevant uh, ex- it's just Britain is an island, right? Britain defends itself uh, and doesn't care what happens in Europe. Um, the the uh, counter perspective being uh, what is you know, continental or the Tory perspective or not Tory, excuse me, uh, the, the traditional Whig perspective um, 
that Britain's interests are very much in maintaining the balance of power in Europe and the colonies are merely an asset that helps it do that. So it, it's a, it's really blue water school versus continental school. It's a matter of perspective. Are you, you know, are you engaging with European politics for the purpose of building up the British empire or are you uh, building up the British empire for the sake of uh, having greater influence in European politics kind of, almost a chicken and an egg issue. Mm-hmm. And what about your research in The Lion at Dawn? Where does it fit within the larger historiography and where do you see your book making an intervention? So I, I think the primary contribution I have to make, I mean, there's a couple things, but, but the primary contribution is that The Lion at Dawn brings together and connects a bunch of threads that, that have traditionally been a little bit disconnected. Um, the, you know, the, the primary focus is the, the war itself, the war of the first coalition, um, which goes from 1792 to 1797. Um, and as you might, you know, observe from the subtitle of the book, uh, that's the second half of the book. But uh, even within that, the, the, the war of the first coalition often takes a back seat in histories. Um, it's when it's, when it is included in 18th century histories, um, it's kind of a footnote at the end, or it's just seen as part of a, a longer 18th century, second hundred years war between Britain and France. Um, you know, kind of an inevitable thing or, um, you know, it not, yeah, again, kind of a footnote. Uh, when it is, you know, in le- histories of the French Revolutionary Wars and Napoleon or um, larger 19th century histories, it's kind of just a precursor to uh, to those Napoleonic Wars and, and the, the later, you know, nationalist wars of the 19th century. So it rarely gets treated kind of on its own terms. Um, so I, I've tried to pull together some of the perspectives of, of coming from the 18th century or looking back from the 19th century and, and bridge that gap. What does it, what did it mean at the time to the people who were there? Um, and, uh, yeah, what, what was, what was Britain t- trying to accomplish in that unique moment when yes, you're fighting the French revolution, but you don't know that there are going to be six coalition wars to come, Right. It's mm-hmm. it's expected to just be this one war. So what's what's the perspective there? That's that's kind of what I I contribute. I think. Are you critical of other histories on this topic? Uh, generally, no. Uh, I I have few serious complaints about the modern historiography. Um, I, I don't think I uh, I don't think this book radically shakes up uh, you know per, the 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 story the the narrative that we understand about the period. I think it clarifies. Uh, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold up any books and say, no, this is, this is absolutely wrong. Um, uh, but I do have a few frustrations that, that I have noticed. Um, one, and I kind of mentioned this just a minute ago, the, the, the issue of periodization, right? Uh, there are so many great books, uh, that deal with Britain in the 18th century and they choose to stop in 1783 or 1793, Right. Uh, because uh, if you go beyond that, you're starting to get into the French Revolution period. And that's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about the 18th century um, and similar with the 19th century. There's a lot of 19th century work that starts in 1815 because eh, the French Revolution, Napoleonic era, that's different. Right. Well, let's talk about the 19th century. So it, it often falls in the cracks. Um, 
But uh, my other sort of frustration that crops up from time to time is there's a sort of lurking bias that dates back to the 19th century, uh, you know, 19th century scholarship where it's, you know, nationalist histories and stuff. And that, that still kind of uh, casts a shadow over the modern historiography where when you write about Britain during this, these coalition wars or, or any of the uh, states at war with France, there's, you almost feel like you have to take a side, right? Either, uh, either Britain is a, a hero struggling to overcome the duplicity of continental allies, or it's an incompetent bully that didn't understand the plight of the continental allies, right? You, it's, you're either sympathizing with Austria, for example, or Britain. You, you can't, uh, do both frequently. That's the portrayal. And, uh, I have tried to steer clear of that, uh, to, to be a little as objective as possible. Obviously we all have our biases, but, um, I've tried to be, to, to be an, uh, an even moderator to, to show, you know, where, what, just, just the motivation, what were they trying to accomplish uh, rather than casting, you know, judgment that they were the bad, you know, they were bad or Austria was bad or whatever. And why have you decided to focus on the European aspects of the war and not more so on the Caribbean or elsewhere? Uh, for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, um, uh, Michael Duffy has a, a great book already dealing with the Caribbean. So I, I didn't I don't feel that it's necessary for me to wade into that. Um, I believe it's called uh, Sugar Soldier, Sugar and Sea Power. Um but also, uh, this is kind of where the, the sources led me. Uh, when I was, I mean, the, the central goal of this was let's, let's dig into the, the sources and find out what the British were trying to accomplish in the War of the First Coalition. Uh, the war is a narrative of defeat. They didn't win. Uh, so why did they do what they did that didn't work? And, you know, what, ultimately, what was the motivation? Does it help explain some of the mistakes and uh, as I as I was digging into the motivation, uh, I kept finding the story coming back, like the motivation cu- kept coming back more to Europe than to the colonies. Um, the objectives were maintaining the balance of power in Europe, saving Europe from French aggression. That comes up over and over again, which is not at all to say that the colonies are not important uh, or or that, you know, that they didn't play any role in shaping, uh, you know, strategy or, or, or decision-making. But, uh, I routinely found that the colonies would be sacrificed as necessary to serve European objectives. So that's, that's why I focused there. And going back to William Pitt, what is his legacy here and what, in what ways is he either emulating or challenging the past? Um, Pitt's an interesting character, uh, and, and there's a, there's a, uh, several biographies of him. Um, he, he's a difficult one to get a handle on sometimes because of the dispersion of his papers. And, um, you know, th- there's a, there's a lot of letters where he references conversations rather than actually writing out, you know, what his ideas are, <laughs> which can make it difficult. But, um, based on my, uh, based on my reading, I see him certainly early on in his uh, administration. I see him as a, a young idealist, um, but he's also smart enough to be cautious, uh, smart enough or, or perhaps nervous enough to be cautious. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he, he he's torn between sort of a, a pragmatic traditionalism that 
hangs over the British government and, and, and comes from parliament and, uh, you know, other cabinet members versus some ideals that he himself wants to pursue, right? He doesn't want to sacrifice, um, you know, the ideal of, you know, pu- pushing for some something resembling international law or, um, you know, fairness and, 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 and uh, uh, what's the word, I guess, upholding legitimate treaties and things like that. He doesn't want to sacrifice that in the name of pragmatism, uh, even when it gets pushed from different quarters. Um, I think insofar as he's looking to the past, um, he, the grand alliances against Louis the 14th are probably the primary um, model that he would look back to. Uh, and I think he and, and several of his colleagues are, are hoping to, uh, either before or in the aftermath of the war, uh, accomplish something along the model of the Peace of Utrecht to kind of redefine and uh, re-secure the balance of power in Europe and, and, and peace. Is there an aspect of indigeneity regarding the European theater of war? Um, I'm hearkening back to like the Seven Years' War um, in America um, but this time, you know, in the British Isles. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think Europe is important, uh, especially after 1783. Uh, I think there's a recognition I, I, when you look to the Seven Years' War, which was kind of a, a heady period for the British. Right? They started off a little rough, and, and but then ultimately won on all fronts pretty handily. Uh, there was a, a, a notion. Uh, in Britain that, I mean, that's what, that, that was kind of a height of the blue water school, right? Like we are an Island, forget Europe. And, and we can just live on the colonies. It's, you know, or, or thrive off of the colonies. Um, and that maybe we call it hubris, uh, is what, uh, a large part of what led to defeat in the American war, right? In the American war of independence, you have, um, essentially the entirety of Europe united in one form or another against Britain, right? Spain, France, and the Dutch all at war, uh, Russia leading almost everyone else in a league of armed neutrality against Britain, uh, threatening to go to war. So Britain's facing a continent alone, which ultimately happens again during the Napoleonic Wars. But, um, but yeah, I think the, 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 the big point that is learned there is uh, Britain cannot afford to ignore Europe. Uh, however strong they may be uh, at sea, however strong, however many colonies they may have, if Europe is united against them, uh, if they don't defend the balance of power and, and make sure they have allies in Europe, uh, it is impossible for them to have anything resembling security. Who else was involved in this conflict outside of Britain and France? I know you just mentioned a few, but if you could reiterate them, that would be great. Sure. So the War of the First Coalition involved almost everybody in some form or another. I mean, not, there was a few that stayed outside of it, but um, the the primary powers at war, I mean, obviously France uh, was on the one side and pretty much by itself for the first half of the war, at least. Um, and then initially France was fighting an Austro-Prussian alliance. So Austria and Prussia allied against it. And then uh in 1793, it added uh, Britain and the Dutch. Uh, so they, their alliance uh, went to war against it. Spain, Portugal, 
and France also uh, invaded parts of Germany and Italy. So you had the Holy Roman Empire and essentially all of the Italian states at one point or another joined in the war. Um, uh, Russia was tangentially involved towards the end, but never really became a, an active participant. Um, and that's, that's kind of the main, main points. Even Paul, okay, so sorry. Yes, I was just going to say. I guess the one that I forgot that's it's kind of a uh, secondary oh, no. is Poland. Uh, oh. Poland was also involved in the war, uh, insofar as it had a revolution that was uh, connected with the events of the war. So yeah, pretty much everybody. Well, we know that William Pitt is Prime Minister of Britain, and George the Third is King of Britain. Who does France have on their side of this? So, uh, speaking of the French government, uh, the one of the great complications of this war is that it uh, the the French government changes over the course of it. Right? I mean, in, in the beginning, uh, Louis the Sixteenth is still alive, uh, at least when they go to war with Austria and Prussia, um, and then Louis the Sixteenth is executed, uh, and you have various iterations of Republican government. Uh, so it, there's a whole, a large number of personalities that come and go. Uh, some that stay all the way through the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, I perhaps most famously, uh, 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 Talleyrand, uh, Napoleon's uh, foreign secretary later, and um, even into the Bourbon Restoration later, he makes kind of some early early moves uh, and comes to prominence during the revolution serves as a diplomat. So he's a, a, an ongoing figure. Uh, but then, you know, every other you know, French revolutionary politician that, that you, you know, you've, you, you might hear of in, in that, uh, in that discussing that period, uh, they've, you know, they, they play a role and, and then they come and go. And the, the problem that you have there, especially as far as the British are concerned is who, who am I negotiating with? Who's calling the shots? Who, you know, if I make a treaty with, you know, Robespierre, um, is that going to still be good in a year or is he going to be dead and now I've got somebody else to deal with? Right. So uh, France is is a difficult run to wrap, to wrap your head around. Pro- probably one of the most significant ones for like directing the French state is um, uh, Carnot, uh, the, the minister of war. So that's a anyway. Johnny Depp has a, a new role that's come in a while with King Louis the 15th. Um, do you have any thoughts about maybe actors playing a role? Are you a fan of Mr. Depp? Um, as far as, you know, what should we be looking for uh, in a portrayal of this time and someone like Louis the 15th or 16th? Yeah. You know, I'm interested to, to, I'm interested to see how it goes. I, uh, uh I mean, a related one that's kind of, I, I've, I've had an eye on and never watched is that there's the, the Catherine, the great show that I, I've seen, uh, around, which is the same period. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any really strong opinions on, on Johnny Depp himself, but, uh, I'm, I am, uh, I'm interested to see what this, uh, 
this role in this this particular production looks like. Louis the Fifteenth, uh, in particular, is often another one that kind of falls in the cracks. The, you know, you'll you'll hear a lot about Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, right? Lots of famous wars and and uh, you know, kind of when you think of the height of Bourbon France, that's kind of what you go to. Uh, and then Louis the 16th, of course, is famous because of the French revolution, but Louis the 15th, um, outside of specialists doesn't get a lot of play. So, um, I'm, I'm excited to see that kind of, uh, a portrayal, uh, of that period. Do you agree or disagree with the idea that the British's goal of alliances was based off of their earlier monarchs or earlier monarchs from other places? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Britain had a tra- tradition of, you know, traditions, two, two competing traditions that we talked about, Blue Water School versus Continental. And the Continental School, at least, had a tradition of uh, Britain being a member of grand alliances to oppose aggressive powers in Europe and um, the grand alliances against Louis the 14th in the late 17th, early 18th centuries. Um, you know, that's definitely on, I think, I think everybody in Britain kind of, not everybody, but you know, the, 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 within the government, that's something that everybody would recognize, you know, uh, that, Oh, this is kind of like that. Um, I do think that what Pitt was trying to do was different, right? He was, uh, hoping to build a true international system rather than simply uh, a wartime alliance or a temporary alliance, right? It, he was looking to, you know, something that might look more like, you know, maybe not quite the League of Nations, but, you know, pushing in that direction. And what about Pitt and his cabinet from a long view? You mentioned periodization before. How are they successful over that time frame? So, uh, I think I think they were successful uh, in you know laying the groundwork, perhaps at least within Britain, for um, engaging with Europe successfully later on uh, to achieve better national better security for Britain. Um, uh, their, their ultimate goal, I mean, Pitt's ultimate goal in the, in the first place, you know, he, co- he comes to power in 1783. Uh, Britain is a wreck after the American war of independence, um, throughout Europe and in Britain itself, everybody thinks Britain is going to become a secondary power. And they're starting to talk about Britain in the same way that they talk about Sweden or even Denmark. Like this is a country that used to be impressive and is not. So, uh, his first goal is we got to rebuild. We've got to, you know, fix up the Navy. We've got to patch up the finances, you know, restore the pillars of British strength. Once that's done, you know, then the goal is let's re-engage with Europe in a way that ensures we won't be isolated again. Um, You know, let's build alliances. And more than that, let's build consensus on what the balance of power should look like and what, you know, is acceptable and unacceptable behavior in the international stage. And in what ways did Britain specifically counteract um, a lot of their enemies, particularly by alliancing with French rebels, for example? Yeah, so uh, French rebels was kind of a contentious issue uh, in Britain for a long time, just because the the implications of siding with French rebels became uh, it, it was it, there was always complications with that, right? Because 
the, the once Louis the Sixteenth was executed, there was no more no consensus, whether in France or out of France, on what the legitimate government of France was. Uh, and so, if Britain decides to ally with rebels, uh, ally with royalists, or perhaps federalists who who have a different republican idea than with the current regime. Uh, then that's a unilateral statement from the British on what the French government should be, which potentially sets them at odds with the other states at war with France, right? If if Austria, for its part, is fighting to restore the monarchy, uh, which it wasn't really, but that's kind of one of the the little asterisks in their um, objectives. Um, You know, if, if that's a consideration for Austria and Britain's fighting to you know, on behalf of Republican rebels, you know, people who want a different sort of Republic, then what happens when, okay, we beat France, but now we both want different forms of the French government in place. So uh, that was always complicated. Uh, but ultimately uh, the decision was made to, uh, to support French rebels without, you know, as much as possible without actually committing to any form of French government, uh, you know, essentially, you know, sending them aid, uh, you know, giving them a light military support, but not actually committing to any form of French government to, to keep the options open. Um, ultimately, that wasn't super successful. By the time the British had kind of reconciled themselves to the political ramifications, uh, the opportunity to capitalize on French rebels uh, had more or less passed. Uh, there was kind of a last ditch effort in 1795 that might have had some chance of success, but uh, they were not able to coordinate good timing uh, with their Austrian allies. You know, they the British sent off their expedition to support rebels, and it was defeated before the Austrians made their offensive. So there was no no ability to really draw off uh, French resources and and conduct a, an effective strategic maneuver. There must have been a lot of primary sources that you were looking at. Um, what materials did you read? Um, and can you tell your audience your research process? Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned that this this falls this topic falls kind of within the cracks and, and, and you know, in the seams between a lot of other literature. So, I mean, I, I started by, you know, with well, obviously with that secondary literature, reading up on all the different approaches that got close to it without ever really um covering it directly. Um, and, and that was, that kind of served as, as a, um, a guide for, for, you know, what to look at and, and, and where to go from there. Um, from that, I went to as much published primary resources as I could, uh, you know, looking at, there's a, an enormous amount of stuff on Google docs that are not Google docs, excuse me, Google books, uh, that you can find, you know, PDFs and, and read, published collections of letters. Um, and that gave me kind of a good grounding of what the situation was. I, I, I had my bearings. Uh, and once I had my bearings, then I, I was able to, again, through uh, support from Military History Center, I was able to make some trips to uh, England, uh, to the National Archives there. And the, so the National Archives uh, in London, also the British Library. And then there's the, uh, I, we, I made a trip up to the Scottish National Library and the Scottish Records Office, um, and one other archive that I managed to, to hit was um, the Clements Library at the University of Michigan. Uh, that they've got a, 
surprisingly large collection of, of letters from the, 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 these, the politicians that I, I was looking at. Um, most of what I looked at, the, the meat, meat of it was uh, official documentation. So uh, letters from the foreign office was probably the biggest thing. Uh, but other, you know, also letters and, and memos from other government departments uh, form a large part of it. And then, you know, as much as I could find there, I, I would also work in the private letters that maybe illuminated other other ideas and other perspectives uh, on it. Um, can you illustrate British isolation? Yeah. So, I mean, British isolation is something that, that happens periodically. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, at the time of the, um, you know, the, the period of this book, the, the example that, that, you know, the British politicians are looking back to is, is, you know, the, the league of armed neutrality and, and the, you know, union of, of most of Europe against them during the American war of independence. I mean, the, the, the biggest scare was that I believe the, the combined French and Spanish fleet sailed through the English channel unchallenged during that war, which is a problem, you know, for, uh, you know, for Britain, you can't, you can't let that happen. Uh, you know, they're relying on that, on the Navy to stop that, uh, rather than, you know, if that's happening, then you're at risk of invasion. Um, and then, Really, you have a very similar situation that comes up during the French Revolutionary Wars, or you know, really into the Napoleonic Wars. Um, by the end of by seventeen ninety seven, by the end of this book, uh, Britain has. I mean, Britain's the only country still fighting France. Uh, I guess Portugal is still technically in, but pretty much everybody else is out, uh, and so Britain is isolated. And there, you know, there's a lot of discussion of man, what do we do? Uh, we're out of allies. Nobody wants to fight anymore, and we can't get France to accept a a peace that gives us any hope of security. So you know, there's there's a lot of discussion of how do we get peace with France? We can't fight on alone. And then the the other side of it is, well, we can't afford not to fight on alone because if we make peace, we're you know we're letting France kind of just bully us into submission. So that's an isolated period. And I say that this happens time and time again. Um, you know, you can look fast forward, a f- you know, a few years, you get to 1940, right? Uh, you know, Britain is by itself in the war with Germany at that point. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things is that when I was in the middle of the process of writing this book, uh, that's when Brexit happened. Uh, and you had the, all the, the big vote of, well, do we leave the European Union or do we stay? And of course they voted to, to leave. And then that's been a, a whole mess to parse through since then. How do we leave and, and all that? So this, this dialogue within Britain of, are we part of Europe or are we our own thing separate and we don't need Europe? Uh, this isn't just ancient history. This is still a, an ongoing dialogue that has, has a lot of, you know, ongoing ramifications. Are there specific fiscal hurdles that are moving your narrative forward? Um, is it debt relief? Is there other some other financial burden? Um, in terms of fiscal hurdles for for the British, um, debt relief is the big thing early on. Uh, you know, they're they're deep in the hole uh, after the American War. Uh, British credit is seen as a little shaky. Uh, so, I mean, one I won't go into great detail on it, but Pitt. Um, devises a, a debt funding plan that uh, starts paying off the debt. And, uh, you know, it, the fact that, that that the plan exists alone restores confidence in British credit, you know, because now lenders know, hey, if we lend to the British, we're going to get paid back and that's okay. 
um, even if they're still deep in debt. Um, once that more or less had had uh, had taken effect by the time the war started in 1793. So once the war kicks off, then the financial burden shifts to um, uh, getting coin, specifically coin, to British armies, to British navies abroad, and to uh, uh, Britain's allies to help them, you know, stay in the fight. Uh, you know, war was as as war always is. It's increasingly expensive all the time. And so um, very quickly in the war, uh, Austria, Prussia, Spain, I mean, most countries were, st- were starting to ask Britain, hey, if you want us to keep fighting, we need money. And uh, when, you, when Britain sends money to these other countries, it has to be coin, which is significant, right? Because you know, Britain only has so much coin in reserve. So, um, you know, if you start, if the Bank of England starts running out of coin, you know, confidence in the Bank of England starts to go down and the ability to do business and, and use perhaps banknotes in place of money declines. That actually hits critical mass in 1797, but some uh, some quick thinking, uh, with some quick thinking, they're able to to stave off a bankruptcy. Uh, and the multilateral cooperation between Britain and some of these other nations who were their strongest allies and then also who resisted them the most? Yeah, it's a, it, it varied across time. Uh, you know, the initial triple alliance that Britain made in 1788 was um, the Netherlands and Prussia. Uh, Prussia was never super happy with that arrangement. Um, the Netherlands was uh, internally divided. So half the country loved it, half the country hated it. Uh, so, you know, I would never say either of those were the strongest alliances, um, during the war itself, um, Austria, and I described this in the book, Austria is, is really the primary ally. Um, is it the strongest ally? Is it the most resolute ally? They don't, Britain and Austria don't agree on a whole lot throughout the war, but, uh, they're essentially the both, but the two of them are the countries, Austria and Britain are the countries that, have the most stake in the war, right? Prussia can afford to walk away from it. They can make a deal with France and leave. Um, you know, Spain it ultimately feels like they can make a deal and leave. The Italian state, you know, a lot of a lot of the other states feel like they can just make a deal and leave. Austria and Britain feel like they are in a uh, existential crisis, so that kind of makes them the primary allies. Uh, interestingly, I would say probably the best ally in terms of. Uh, following through on promises and cooperation for for Britain was probably Sardinia, the Kingdom of Sardinia uh, in Italy. Small though it was. And what about the topic of peace? Was there a person or political stance that was really interrupting peace? You mentioned the Peace of Westphalia and then also the Peace of Utrecht. Yeah, well, and that, so that's the the kind of the larger context of the work. Um, I think, you know, since the Peace of Utrecht, so Westphalia is 1648, uh, Utrecht is kind of the update to the Peace of Westphalia in 1715 to, to massively oversimplify it. Uh, but since that time, uh, the biggest threat to peace and, and the balance of power that theoretically maintained the peace one of them, one of the biggest threats was uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia, right? You have Prussia go from a, 
you know, very secondary kingdom that's, uh, or an electorate, not even a kingdom, uh, that's part of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, to being a significant power on the European stage uh, in its own right, you know, capable of challenging Austria rather than just being a client of Austria. So that changes the dynamic entirely, right? When you have a new power come out of where there wasn't one, necessarily things change. Um, beyond that, uh, well, I guess the other thing I would say about Frederick the Great in Prussia is um, Frederick the Great did some creative diplomacy to get away with the things he did. And that that occasioned quite a bit of d- dialogue within the kind of enlightenment international relations theory uh, intellectual community. Uh, and I think potentially, this is, I guess, a, a, a preview for you. One of my next projects is going to be to dig into that uh, in intellectual side of things uh, and see where, where Pitt kind of landed with that and how much that influenced him. Uh, but there was quite a bit of dialogue about, you know, uh, threats to the balance of power, you know, aggressive states versus satisfied states uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, besides Frederick the Great, though, uh, you also see during from the time of, again, the Peace of uh, Utrecht, ultimately up to the you know, late 18th century, uh, you see the rise of rise in power of Britain from kind of being a secondary power that that is involved but not dominant to being a much more dominant power. Uh, Russia goes from being essentially off the map to being a significant force in European politics. Um, meanwhile, older powers like the Netherlands, Sweden, Poland have all diminished in power. So there's quite a bit of shakeup there. And really, uh, the French Revolutionary Wars occur at a time when the balance of power had become unstable for the, those reasons. And everyone was kind of scrambling to redefine it in a way that was favorable to them. Perfect storm for a general war. Negotiations and treaties that ended up stalled. Why was that? And what was the reason? Mostly to put it, to put it succinctly, mostly it had to do with travel time and um, either misunderstandings or distrust. Um, uh, One of the, one of the greatest Examples of stalled negotiation. Stalled is a strong word for it, but um, there was a early in the war. The British were trying to negotiate an alliance with Spain, right, to coordinate their war efforts because they they weren't allied before the war. So you have to work out a treaty before you can start actually cooperating productively. So they were working on that, and you know it was two to three weeks travel time to go between London and, and Madrid, depending on weather. And with all that, uh, the, tre- the the negotiation stalled simply because they forgot to send the seals with the diplomat they sent to Madrid. So he gets there, they negotiate the treaty, and he goes to sign it, and he doesn't have the seals. So they have to, you know, they try, they offer to send it back to London, and the Spanish are like, no, 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 we want to do it here. So, okay, well, then we've got to wait. And so, you know, you lose a month plus just waiting for the seals to come in the mail. You know, and meanwhile, the French are still fighting, right? And you're just waiting for something to have. You know, you're waiting, waiting for a check in the mail, right? Um, so that's a big thing. Um, 
There's another great example of, of a misunderstanding between Britain and Austria that completely stalls negotiations throughout a winter. And it happens at a time when all the roads are just reduced to slop because of the winter, you know, precipitation. And so, you know, travel time for messages goes up quite a bit. And, and so, you know, travel time is slow and, and they, there's a misunderstanding. So they have to write back and forth several times to figure it out. And next thing you know, by the time they have it sorted out, well, it's too late. The campaign has started and the French took the initiative. Right. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's really just travel distance. Right. Um, which is something, uh, that there was an attempt to solve that, right. The British, uh, and the Dutch put out a call for, Hey, everybody come to the front and let's have a, a general headquarters that we can use to talk to each other. Uh, nobody really bit on that. Uh, and that's something that you see, if you, if you look at the war of the Sixth coalition, where Napoleon is finally defeated, that's something that's different. There is a United coalition headquarters where all of the, you know, representatives from every government with power to negotiate are in the same place. And so you can work out deals very quickly. What about the idea of patriots? Is it the same for the British as what the contemporary, you know, historian would think of as like an American patriot? So yeah, that's an interesting question. The 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 idea of, of patriotism uh, in in this period. So uh, I guess as a as a, a note of clarification, when I use the term, the only time I use the word patriot in the book is in reference to uh, Dutch patriots, and specifically. The Dutch Patriots are, I mean, that's a name that they had for their their kind of Republican political party as opposed to the, the monarchical political party. Uh, so, you you know, if that, that's the way to understand that in the book. But uh, as far as patriotism goes, uh, you know, that's kind of, you, you start getting into how, how much is this a, a forecast of the, uh, you know, the 19th century with the nationalistic wars. Um, there is definitely something to... British patriotism during this period in much, I mean, the same way that there's obviously the French are able to leverage a sort of patriotism themselves quite a bit. There's a lot been written about that. Um, from the British side, um, particularly in 1792, before the war occurs, uh, there is, there's a lot of fear about the French trying to, uh, stir up a revolution in Britain so that that Britain would stay neutral uh, or perhaps be an ally. Uh, and as the government starts trying to take measures to, you know, root out any French spy work or, uh, you know, get, get ahead of any British revolutionaries, make sure that they don't have the ability to, the, the opportunity to take control um, there is there is a, a, an outpouring really of of British patriotism in that period. There's lots of uh, petitions of, of loyalty that are sent to the government and uh, a great deal of um, expression of support uh, in that kind of frightening time. Um, you know, there's the question of how widespread that was in reality uh, is is a subject that, that is debated. Um, you know, there's there's a, a fair amount of books that, that will delve into that, but uh, you, they definitely there's something there. There's definitely some patriotism, um, and there's there's a, a desire to uh, there, there's widespread desire amongst especially the the 
the nobility in Britain to, to, you know, get work their way into the campaigns on the continent somehow. They want to go to war, which is, I mean, is that a patriotism thing? And eh, it's less that than it is glory seeking, right? They want to uh, ascribe glory to their names, but, um, you know, the line there is, is perhaps a little thin, you know, some glory, some patriotism perhaps. Um, but you know, however much patriotism there is, there are, there were still, uh, naval mutinies later in the war. There was an army mutiny later in the war. So, uh, patriotism certainly had its limits. Um, I think that limit probably was, you know, hunger. Um, there are, there is the triple alliance that you write about. Um, and then also you mentioned intermediate, intermediary provinces like the United Provinces, Poland, Sweden, the Ottoman Empire, and members of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, are, was, was there a group that was the enemy to this triple alliance, like an axis power, so to speak? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a great question. The, um, so going back again to that 1783 period where Britain is isolated, needs an ally so that they're not, you know, all by themselves and, and helpless at the mercy of whoever wants to bully them. Uh, you know, they're, they're looking for allies, you know, in general, just for strength. But what they're staring at and what frightens them is at that point, France uh, has a dynastic connection and traditional alliance with Spain. France has an alliance with Austria. Austria has an alliance with Russia. And Russia tends to call the shots for Denmark in that period. Um, traditionally, France has had good relations with Sweden, Poland, and the Ottoman Empire. And particularly at the very end of the American War, uh, France has more influence in the Netherlands than the British do. So, again, in 1783, when the British are kind of looking at the continent, uh, they're just coming off of a war with France. So naturally France is the seen as the main threat and France happens to have connections with most of Europe. Uh, and it, you know, in reality, it's not that monolithic and you, you know, any cursory look through French history will tell you that. But when you're sitting in London, you don't know that you don't know how, how strong that connection is. Um, and so there's a lot of very frantic work that happens to try and figure out, okay, can we peel Russia off of the system? Can we get Austria disconnected? Can we get Spain disconnected? You know, who can we separate from that so that we're not facing such a huge block? Um, I would say the biggest threat ultimately besides France and really what Pitt increasingly sees as the bigger threat is Russia. Uh, because Russia seems to be, uh, advancing deeper and deeper into Europe and accruing more and more power. And there seems to be no sign of any way to stop that. Um, and yeah, I mean, this kind of flows into um, uh, you know, maybe another, another point to discuss, but uh, the Ochkov crisis, right? Uh, the, the Pitt's idea, Pitt's view that Russia was the real threat to the balance of power in Europe more than France, um, it really came to a head in that in that that crisis, the Ochkov crisis, and that's a that's a moment where um, war has broken out between Russia and the Ottoman Empire over uh, the Crimean region, and uh, Russia and Austria are fighting the Ottoman Empire. They're not doing great, but they're slowly winning. Uh, Sweden jumped in on on that war briefly, 
and Russia defeated them, right? Uh, then Poland is thinking about maybe getting involved, so, but Russia is trying to, you know, through political intrigue, keep Poland down. So Russia, that's probably the moment where Russia is the most vulnerable, uh, but also where, you know, that Russia is on the cusp of making some significant gains uh, in controlling the Black Sea region and dominating Poland. And so Pitt has the idea that this is the moment that we need to take a stand and ensure that Poland stays strong, that the Ottoman Empire stays strong, so that you have some resistance to Russian aggression into Europe. Um the problem, in short, to, to summarize quite a bit, in short, um, Pitt found that while that made sense to him, uh, that was a tough sell to the British public. You know, why? How, how in the world? How do you convince you know somebody in in London that we need to go to war with Russia over somewhere in the Crimea? You know, in in seventeen, you know, ninety one. Uh, why do we care? Um, which honestly has some echoes to today. I think um, there's, it's interesting how these things kind of rhyme as it, as it turns out. And what military advancements were happening outside of the Navy? So I've been talking about like the army uh, more. Um, the, uh, the reality is in the, in this particular period, not a whole lot. Uh, there's, in fact, what I saw more was that there was a sense of regression in the British Army. Um, the Navy definitely got a lot of attention after when, when Pitt came to came to office, but the the Army was, I think, scaled back for financial reasons and and uh, uh, didn't receive a lot of attention. Um, what I what I found on looking at commanders' letters on campaign is that they they were constantly struggling to get the supplies that they needed. Uh, and often having to having to borrow from the Austrians to to put things together, um, and they would often talk about uh, particularly light troops, for example, uh, light light troops, irregular troops was something that uh, saw a lot of action in uh, uh, the previous wars, uh, Seven Years' War, the American War of Independence, and and even the Continental Wars, uh, the Continental concurrent Continental Wars at that time, uh, and. I, I saw several times that commander British commanders would say, man, I wish I had a light uh, brigade or something to, to conduct flexible operations. And they had more or less let that, you know, fade away or disbanded or, or whatever. So they, the British are rebuilding the army, not entirely from scratch, but they, there's a lot of rebuilding that goes on uh, going into the war. And you mentioned the Ochikov crisis. Is there anything else that, um, you are mentioning about it that others might've missed? Um, I think, yes, I, I think so. The Ochakov crisis has been covered before. It's not a, it's not a new, uh, new obscure thing exactly. Uh, at least to specialists, but it, uh, in my, I, I looked in great detail, especially at the, um, the, Correspondence that British the uh, the correspondence between the British government and the Polish government during the Ochakov crisis, and it, what I found is, I mean, it, it, the, the Ochakov crisis is complicated. There's like you know the British are trying to stop the Russians from getting control of part of Turkish territory because they're hoping to conduct trade with Poland through that territory, uh, and 
there's a whole angle of, of the Prussians want to do something else that would complicate matters. Um, we could be here for an hour just on that. I won't, I won't do that, but, um, I guess in short, the, the Ochkov crisis was, was really about trying to save Poland and with it, the whole balance of power in Eastern Europe in particular, and really the whole of Europe. Um, I might go so far as to say, and this, this would be a bit of a bold statement, but I think I could sort of defend it, um, that the, when, when the British had to back down in the Ochkov crisis and let, let Russia get what it wanted, um, that guaranteed the second and third partitions of Poland that erased Poland from the map. And those partitions played a huge role in making sure that the Austrians and the Prussians and the British were not unified in their war with France. So, I mean, you know, you don't want to be too deterministic, but you, know, you could almost look at the Ochkov crisis and say that the moment the British had to back down there, the war of the first coalition was lost, right? They'd already lost the diplomatic battle to unite uh, Europe, uh, even before the war started. Uh, How much were you influenced by military history in the sense that um, are there battle fronts that, you know, you really focus on in the book? Um, where did you focus on, you know, regarding these battles? So uh, military history, and that's kind of where I came from. My my um, that's what I was trained in initially. My master's thesis was. Uh, focused on the the 1793 campaign in the Netherlands specifically, um, but of course this you know, the, this book goes much much larger into um, the whole the whole war and, and focusing more on diplomacy. Um, I don't do a ton of operational history in here. Uh, I do enough that you know what's going on. Hopefully, um, uh, there's some good maps uh, that I, I made to hopefully show what's what what the state of things is. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I chart out battles and uh, the, the movements on campaign, uh, trying to use those to illustrate diplomatic intention, right, and, and political intention. Um, you know, uh, I, believe, uh, I believe it was uh, 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 Clausewitz that said, you know, war is politics by other means, right? Uh, continuation of politics by other means. So, you know, in in war, there's you know there's there's a political objective at play, and uh, I find that the campaigns, the 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 operations, uh, the you know the plans of battle, uh, were often determined not not entirely by the needs, you know, the, the just straight military needs, but there was always always a diplomatic or military or a political consideration that would shape, you know, why, why do I need to advance on this city rather than that city? You know, why are we, why are we going to link with the Austrian army or not link with the Austrian army? Right. There's always a different objective. Um, you know, the, the British army in, in, uh, the, the Netherlands in 1793, um, it's relatively small. It's not there hoping to win the war. It's there 
so that Britain can have a showing on the continent. I mean, defend the Netherlands first, but then once once that's done, it's there to establish a connection with Austria and start coordinating on how we're going to win this war. And so, you know, the the directions to that that particular army have less to do with, you know, uh winning a, a particular battle and more to do with diplomatic leverage. And going to 1815, um, what was it that carried Britain through all the way to then? And actually what's happening in 1815 for you? Um, so I think the, you know, the, the reforms uh, to try and pull, you know, recover British strength that started in 1783 uh, you know, patching up the Navy, patching up uh, finances. Um, that is a large part of what enables Britain to uh, stay independent and stay at war effectively with France from essentially 1793 to 1815. Which is, there's the Peace of Amiens in between. But, um, but for most of that period at war uh, and for a lot of that time without, without any allies to speak of. Um, the fact that, you know, the finances were fixed allows Britain to fund this, right? Having strong credit enables continued funding. Uh, the fact that the Navy was stronger allows Britain to have a little more uh, confidence that it can fight on alone. Um, you know, I and, and, and perhaps this is a little bit ironic given my focus on Europe, but, um, you know, and, and I guess it's ironic for, for Pitt too, uh, he he wants to save Europe, save the balance of power in Europe. Really, that's that it, it, you know for for the sake of British security. It's not all altruistic, uh, and, and he's unable to do that. And so, as he as the British are unable to you know save the situation in Europe, they fall back on well, we've got to make sure our colonial holdings are strong. We've got to make sure the Navy is, is doing its thing, right? We've got to, you know, as when the Dutch are defeated and the French set up a puppet government there, you know, the British seize all the Dutch colonies, right? We've got to make sure that that's not a threat. Um, you know, I started doing this, trying to do some of the same stuff when Spain switches sides, right? So, um, you know, while, while the, the intention is to have a Europe first uh, focus, the you know the reality is they, they end up having to rely on the overseas empire and the fact that they are able to make that transition uh, economically allows them to continue all the way to 1815 um, and, and then stand forth as as a, a major power and, and very prominent in the vic- ultimate ultimate victory over Napoleon and, and peace negotiations there indemnities were they successful against financial losses for britain and um was britain ever on the verge of losing this war uh yeah so that's two two good questions um indemnities in this particular war the the uh the british didn't see uh indemnities until until the end so i mean we were just talking about you know how they they had to you know, their, their finances had to carry them through a long period. Uh, you know, by the time you get to 1815 and you can start, you know, collecting some indemnification from France, um, you know, Britain has already figured out how to live without it. So um, how important are they? Not super. Uh, 
were they ever on the verge of losing the war with France? Um, yeah, there were there were a few close calls. Uh, the within the scope of my book, the closest call seems to have been uh, in 1797. Uh, that's a real uh, early in 1797. There's a real low point um, where uh, all of all of the continental allies, except for Austria and I guess. Uh, Portugal uh, are out of the war. So there's very, very little that Britain can do uh, against France in that period. You can land on the coast, but Britain doesn't have a large enough army to really make that uh, practical at that point. So uh, you're fighting on kind of by yourself. It's not looking hopeful. Everybody's making peace with France. Uh, Some, you know, Spain has switched sides. The Dutch have switched sides. So it's starting to look like the American war of independence all over again. Um, and in that moment, uh, France made a, an attempt to invade, uh, you know, sent some pretty raggedy troops over uh, to land in Ireland and Wales. Um, they sent three expeditions. Only one of them made it. Uh, this is known as the uh, Fishguard invasion, I think, because it, was, it was near the town of Fishguard in Wales. And um, ultimately, it came to nothing, right? They landed. Some Welsh militia showed up bluffed that they were that they had the, the French surrounded and the French were depressed and surrendered. And that was the end of that, right? Uh, but the fact that the French landed troops in Britain was horrifying and that the scare that that prompted caused runs on the bank throughout the country. And if you remember, I mentioned earlier, right, the, the bank had been bleeding out coin to sustain the army for throughout the war. So that came at a time when you show up to the bank, the bank doesn't have coin to give you anymore because it's all gone. Uh, and that's where you run into a, a situation of, Ooh, uh, we might have a, we ha- might have a bankruptcy on our hands here. Um, so, you know, there was some, some quick government thinking a little bit of, uh, you know, shows of loyalty from uh, merchant lobbies and, and companies throughout London. And there was a general agreement to, uh, that the British government would accept uh, banknotes from the Bank of England, paper money for taxes, and that the, many of the the merchants would accept it for as as legal tender for goods and services. And that was enough that you kind of made a, a an abrupt transition to all right, paper money is okay, and that kind of staved off the crisis at least for the moment. Uh, but the reason that's interesting is that happens a few months before there is a naval mutiny in two of the fleets. And the army mutinies in London, and a large part of the government's ability to satisfy those mutinies was essentially being able to pay off the navy and the army. And if the bank has collapsed by that point, what happens? I don't know. I mean, do you have a British Revolution? Maybe, uh, maybe not. Maybe it's not that dramatic. But to my mind, that is the closest closest it came to uh, to all falling apart. Why is Dunkirk an important position? Um, so in the, in the context of this war, it's primarily a, a supply point. It's a, it's a port that the British could use to supply their armies or the Austrian armies uh, uh, on the continent. Um, as the, as the um, British and Austrian armies are advancing through, um, you know, first the Netherlands and then into what is today Belgium, what was then the Austrian Netherlands, uh, and then finally trying to push into France, um, 
you know, that that's a supply line that is very long for Austria, uh, trying to keep that army going. And uh, for the British, they're going through Dutch ports or you know, some, some Belgian ports too, but they're, they're, they've got kind of a long supply line as they get closer to the French border. So Dunkirk is uh, important. I mean, number one, because it's, it's a potential point of danger for an invasion of Britain, but, but also looking at it from an offensive perspective, um, it's, it's a place it, much once that's conquered, if you're making, if you're going on the offense, you know, it's, it's a fortified location that you can use to supply your army and gain a little more momentum on that, uh, offensive campaign. What other historical sites or markers remain that tourists or researchers can visit? And did you visit some of these places? Uh, I honestly, I didn't really, um, there, I, I went to, I did, went to, uh, England, uh, and, and the archives there and I, you know, toured around London. Um, I didn't make my way over to any of the battlefields, uh, on the, um, you know, on the French borders or, or Belgium. Uh, there are some that are there. Um, they are from what I have seen from others that have gone, um, they are not, there's not a whole, like if you go to Gettysburg in the United States, right, it's a whole, it's a whole thing, right? There's the visitor center and there's a museum and then you can walk the battlefield and there's all kinds of stuff there, right? Um, there's nothing really comparable to that that I'm aware of uh, for any of these. There's, you know, some markers, there's, you know, locations that you can chase down. But I mean, these are places that people just lived. I mean, if you, if you put a, if you, if you covered Europe with historical markers for every battlefield, you, you wouldn't have any place to live. Um, so there's, uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of that in England. Of course, there is, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, commemoration of the Napoleonic Wars, most famously Trafalgar square with the giant, uh, you know, statue of Horatio Nelson on a pillar, right? There's, you know, that's, celebrating one of the the defining victories for Britain there. Um, I did go to Apsley House, which is uh, the Duke of Wellington's house uh, that is still kept as a museum. Uh, And that has quite a bit of memorabilia. More of that is geared toward the the later Napoleonic era than the uh, earlier wars, but uh, it's a fascinating place to visit. I'd recommend it. Um, Did your argument ever change as you made drafts of your book? Yes, uh, it, it did. Originally, when I when I first started this project, I kind of thought that I might do something about how the War of the First Coalition uh, was something like the, the first war for the Second Empire, or, or that was kind of the, the title I had in mind, uh, talking about how this marked a transition of British strategy from the way they approached war during the First Empire period, you know, up through losing the American colonies, uh, versus the way they approach strategy during the Second Empire period, which is more India-centric. Um, that proved to be a, a more nebulous than I wanted to take on. Uh, so I, I kind of constrained my focus to uh, really just unpacking the strategy of the uh, the uh, First Coalition. Um, but probably the biggest change, once I kind of had that focus narrowed down, was... Uh, kind of gradually realizing some of the greater significance of, of what I was discovering. Um, you know, again, just started with the idea of unpacking 
Pitt's foreign policy and the and the strategy in that war. What what were they trying to accomplish? Uh, and as I discovered that, oh, okay, well, they're trying to build a a, a productive uh, international or a multilateral security system uh, to safeguard the peace of Europe and establish some sort of international law. Um, you realize, oh, wait a minute, that's actually what they did in 1815 with the Congress of Vienna after Napoleon was defeated. And you can trace a line of continuity from Castlereagh, the you know, British foreign secretary that really is a big architect in that, all the way back to Pitt. I mean, they were, Castlereagh was Pitt's protege. Uh, he, they shared those ideas. Um, and the, the other th- interesting thing to discover was that if you, once you make that line of continuity, the Vienna Congress system uh, that you know, is, is put together in 1815 is often viewed as a, a reaction to the Napoleon, uh, the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, right? You have this period of massive violence, you need a new international system to protect against it. And that makes a lot of sense. And that's mostly true. But I found it interesting that as Pitt is articulating these ideas in the mid 1780s, this is before the French Revolution has happened. This is before Napoleon is a name that anybody knows, right? So those ideas are not just a reaction to the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. Maybe the the will to put them into practice comes as a reaction to the that period, but the the ideas already exist um, well before that. And uh, it's there seems to be a widespread recognition that the balance of power has collapsed. And we need to fix it in some way, uh, and, and so that's that's the uh, you know that was that was fascinating to me, especially you know as we in our world today we continue to uh, revise and reconsider the best way to handle international law, right? You know, the UN is a, a creation, uh, you know, post World War II creation, uh, and it's got some systems that are you know definitely were designed for a 1950s period that do they still work today? Yeah, kind of. So it's, it's an ongoing, ongoing uh, process. Uh, Would you mind telling your audience more about exiles? Um, I believe, or maybe present the bourbons were exiled as the war ended. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as as the French revolution, you know, got into full swing uh, and, and got increasingly radical and violent, you had, um, uh, the nobility lost a lot of property and ultimately started losing their lives. And so, uh, and, and later on, it wasn't just nobility. It was anybody who was part of the wrong political party. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of exiles from France as the war went on. And as France conquered territory, sometimes there were more exiles of other places, too. Um, I, a notable example that, that I actually make mention of is the uh, the Dutch monarchy or yeah, the Dutch monarchy, the Royal family and, and, and Royalists had to flee the Netherlands uh, as France conquered it. So um, there's, you know, there's all of that. Uh, and these, you know, the French exiles, what we call emigres are, um, you know, they're, they're scattered across Europe, um, mostly living in some, you know, a German state somewhere or Austria or a Britain uh, potentially, um, and you know, they, they would engage with the, their host governments and try and, you know, persuade their host governments to, to take, you know, moves against France or support them to raise an army to invade France or something like that. And some of them, some of them had something maybe they could offer. Some of them were just, you know, <laughs> uh, 
uh, didn't really have much uh, to offer. But uh, yeah, by the end of the war, 1815, you do have the Bourbon Restoration, the, uh, you know, the, the, the nobles, the royal family are able to come back. Um, and it's a, it's a rocky time in France. It kind of goes back and forth uh, as they have a few more revolutions in the 19th century. But uh, you kind of patch society up a little bit. Yeah. Um, let the audience know how they can find you either in person or um, through uh, websites or anywhere. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, unfortunately I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not much for social media. Uh, I've got them. I just don't use them very much. Um, but if you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to, to communicate and, and, uh, you know, talk about the book or, or toss around, you know, ideas or, you know, if this is, if you've got, you know, scholars that have some, uh, projects they're working on, I'm happy to, to help as much as I can. Uh, so my email is probably the best way to reach me. That would be, uh, J A R R E N seven one one at gmail.com. Um, and I, you know, I guess if you wanted to meet up in person, if that happened to work out, then then uh, uh, we could we could uh, we could arrange that by way of email, probably as well. Well, it was great getting to know about you and the Lion at Dawn, your new book. And on behalf of New Books Network and your host Nathan Moore, we thank historian Nathaniel Jarrett for teaching us about the history of Great Britain and the French Revolution. Stay up to date on all things NBN to get more episodes on literature and history.